0: How marvelous, how wonderful. Children, at this time, you can be dismissed to your class, thankful for the instruction that can take place at the children's level. Oh, for that day, when with the ransomed in glory, his face we shall at last see. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we've finished Romans chapter 6 after uh, four total sermons, one from Andy and I did the last three in chapter 6, and moving on to chapter 7 this week. Last week we talked about the end of Romans 6, and we talked about how that whole passage is really answering the question from Romans 6 verse 15, so I invite you to look at that real quick. Verse 15 of Romans 6 says, what then are we to sin because we are not under law? But under grace, it's a question that he's answering, and he goes on to answer that question through the rest of chapter 6, and he basically says, of course we should not sin, even though we are free from the law and under this new, uh, this new jurisdiction of grace, as it were, we shouldn't sin because, after all, we serve a new and better master, and whoever you serve reveals who your master is. God, as the good master, gives us good fruit, fruit for eternal life. And so now, as we get to chapter 7, Paul is going to kind of circle back to that idea of law, of being free from the law. If you were to highlight all the instances of law in chapter 7, you would see quite a few. Uh, Most of those refer to God's law. In particular, I think it's usually getting at the Mosaic law more specifically. And so that's kind of where we're living over the next week or two here as we tackle Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, and and today we'll be tackling all the way through verse number 12. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Peter remarks at one point that some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. Welcome to Romans chapter 7. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand what he has for us this morning. Father, apart from your spirit illumining us, we cannot see the wonderful things in your law. So I ask that you would open up our eyes afresh, perhaps even for the first time. And that you would help us to just behold your glory in the gospel. To recognize the freedom that we have. Help us to understand what that means, what it doesn't mean. And to walk away a little more desiring to please you. A little more rejoicing in the freedom that we've been given. In Christ's name, amen. In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress... There's a man named Christian, and he's got this burden on his back. And if you're familiar with the story, perhaps you are, perhaps you aren't, but he's got this burden. It represents sin, it's an allegory. So there's very big parallels to the Christian life with Christian. And Christian has this burden that he's trying to get relief from, and it weighs him down. And a man comes to him named Evangelist and says, Hey, there's a way for you to be free from your burden. And he says, you just have to go this direction and follow this specific path, and there you can find relief from your burden. So Christian sets out on the path, and things get a little rocky. (laughs) It gets difficult. And pretty early on, he meets someone named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And this man says to him that, Christian, there's another way that you can go to be relieved from your burden. There's a different way than what that guy told you to get it off your back. And here's what he says. This is a slightly modernized version, but same gist. So worldly wise man tells Christian, the answer lies just a short distance away in the village named Morality. There ask for a gentleman by the name of Legality or Law. He's a very judicious man and a man of very good name. He has skill to help men off with such burdens as yours from their shoulders. You must walk up that hill, and the first house you come to is his. So Christian turned from his current path to go visit Mr. Legality's house for help. But as he approached the hill, it seemed to be steeper than he first thought. It rose so high that the side of it hung above him. It raised fear in him to venture further for he was afraid that the hill could fall on his head. He stood there trying to figure out what to do and his burden seemed heavier than ever. Much heavier than when he had set out from his home. Flashes of fire erupted from the side of the hill. The sight filled Christian with dread that he would be burnt. Sweat beaded across his brow as he trembled with fear. It's a pretty intense picture. What Bunyan is trying to capture is that this person was trying to relieve himself of his burden of sin by looking to the law. By just obeying all of commands enough to lose the burden on his back. Essentially, Christian was seeking to do enough good things, coming to Mr. Legality's house, to relieve him of his burden. But though we may not look to the law for our salvation... I wonder how often we look to the law for our sanctification. When we think that bearing fruit is all about self-will and sheer effort. When we do that, we've forgotten that we are freed from the law. And the result is that we try to serve God by just going deeper and deeper into the law. In this passage, Paul focuses on our freedom from the law and what that freedom results in he'll discuss how that doesn't mean the law is bad the law is a good thing god's law and yet that law is insufficient and so we could put this big idea on the screen here this is kind of the sermon in a snapshot recognizing our freedom from god's good law is essential to serving him and it feels a little paradoxical at first glance what is what is how can recognizing our freedom well usually i want some freedom from something bad <laughs> But here I'm saying we're recognizing our freedom from God's good law is something that is essential to serving him. Well, hopefully that statement will get clarified as we go through this morning. But as we flesh this statement out, we'll focus on two main ideas, our freedom from the law and the goodness of the law. So I, I know that might be a little bit small. If you want to take a picture of this, just this is kind of a quick overview of the passage. Um, I just want to give you a quick helicopter view of where this passage goes because there's enough in it that it'd be very easy to get lost. so these are your signposts but basically the first six verses you can think of them as a couple sandwiches if that's easier to think about you know you know me and food uh, so our freedom from the law verses one through three basically give this principle that death releases from law and He then illustrates that. We'll talk about that. Verse 4 is kind of the core. It's the meat of the sandwich, as it were, um, talking about our freedom from the law. So it's the method and the results of being released from the law. So what does this mean for us as Christians, this illustration and this principle? And then verses 5 and 6 really flesh out verse 4. So you can kind of think as that first. It's all about verse 4 in that first section. And then in the second section, the goodness of the law, Paul raises a question in verse 7. He asks, is the law sin? Is it bad? And most of that section is answering that question. No, sin uses the law, but it doesn't make the law bad. Again, we're going to hit all this. I'm just going quickly to give you the helicopter view. And then verse 12 kind of summarizes the conclusion. Okay, the law is not bad. It's not sin. In fact, it's a good thing. So this is where we're going today. Hopefully that gives you a little some signposts that you can keep in mind on our journey through the beginning of Romans chapter 7 so let 's start then by focusing on our freedom from the law. Paul says in verse one, or do you not know brothers? for I am speaking to those who know the law so this tells us something about his audience that they know the law. We talked last week how the church in Rome would have had some Jews and Gentiles in it. Uh, the only thing i 'll add to what I said last week is that even some of the Gentiles likely would have been familiar with it. in fact, there were probably a lot of Gentiles, maybe even mostly Gentiles in the church, but there was likely some strong Jewish influence from that. Um, Paul talks about how he's writing to the Gentiles in chapter 1, for instance. Um, but there's this mix of Jews and Gentiles, but the point here in verse, verse 1 is that they know God's law. That there is a law that, is, that God's law is familiar to the people he's writing to. So, what does he say about this law? Do you not know? It's something you should know. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So there's that principle, and you've got to keep that in mind. The law, God's law, is only binding on a person as long as he lives. Some translations translate that as it has jurisdiction over the person as long as he lives. I find that a helpful way to look at it. Or it only has authority over someone while he lives. So the point is pretty simple that someone who's dead cannot be under obligation to the law. If I'm not alive, you can't pull me over for speeding, right? Paul is now going to illustrate that with the picture of marriage. So verse 2, he's illustrating this principle. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Okay, so law has a jurisdiction when it comes to marriage. And it's that in the marriage relationship, there uh, there is a law governing this. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but... If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So that law is severed, its jurisdiction is broken because she is re- uh, because of the death in this instance. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive because after all, that law is still binding in that case. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the death provides this freedom as it were in this case and allows her to then be able to marry someone else. That's the illustration. By the way, I'm being very careful to say that this is an illustration. Um, These verses have been used at times, perhaps you've heard this before, to, to, to take certain stands on divorce and remarriage that are very strong. But you might have noticed that these verses don't say anything about divorce. There's nothing, nothing said in these verses at all about that. And I, th- I think to use this as an argument that someone could not get uh, divorced in certain instances or remarried in certain instances uh, would be to just totally miss the point of what Paul is saying. He's using it as an illustration. Uh, and so to take an illustration and use it for these, to make a big theological point is, I think, a very shaky thing to do exegetically. Um, That's a whole conversation. I know I might have just like piqued your curiosity a little bit, but since it's not the point of this passage, we're going to just leave it at that. So again, the main principle here that he's working with is that when the death occurs in this picture, there's a releasing from the law, and thus, this is key, there's an opportunity for new relationship. So how does Paul apply this to us? Well, here's verse 4. Like I said, this is the central verse in these first six verses. Likewise, my brothers you also have died to the law. So there's a similarity to the picture. Now, if you start, uh, if you kind of like tease out the picture here of the husband and the wife, and it gets a little confusing because he he says, you've died to the law. Well, that sounds like the husband in the picture. But then he says, then you are free uh, so that you you can belong to another. Well, that sounds like the wife in the picture. So if you try to do like this point for point thing with the metaphor, it gets a little confusing. The best way to tackle it, in my opinion, is to just say, Verses 2 and 3 are giving an illustration. And they're illustrating that one primary point, which is death releases from law and allows for new relationship. So, you also have died to the law. This is the action. This is what's happened. My relationship to the law has been fundamentally changed. This might sound a little familiar, because this is kind of how we talked in chapter 6 about a relationship to sin. That because we have been united with Christ, we shall also live with him. That we are dead to sin. That's kind of interesting. That there's some similar th- concepts in play. We've both died to sin and died to the law. So does that make sin and law the same thing? Glad you asked, but that has to wait until verse 7. So we'll keep that in mind. But how is it that we've died to the law? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ this is how it's even possible that I could be released from the jurisdiction of law where I am condemned where I am bound to do all that the law says and to hope that by doing that that things will work out now of course in the Old Testament even those believers were saved by faith but so often we can look to the law as a means to to find salvation is what it it can feel like We, we shouldn't do that But it's through the body of Christ. When Christ died in my place, I died. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And so when he died, it couldn't have been for his own condemnation. He couldn't be condemned because he did something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. Instead, he died in my place. The me that was under the law's mastery, the law's jurisdiction, its authority, that me, Paul says died on the cross. But let's remember the principle. Death releases from law and allows us then to belong to another. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that, those should always set off spotlights in your mind, alarm bells, so that, here's the purpose, here's the result at least, so that you may belong to another. As a Christian, you have a new relationship that is possible. You can belong to someone else. Who? To him who has been raised from the dead. Christ died. We died with him to the law, but he didn't stay dead. He is risen from the dead, and it is the risen Jesus Christ, this verse teaches us, that we belong to. He is our new master, and what a great and gracious master he is. And so I told you there was a lot in verse 4. There's still a little bit more. To him who has been raised from the dead, last phrase in verse 4, in order that... Okay, so there's something more. More than merely belonging to him, there's even a further result. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So here is really the end result, or we could even say the purpose of this. Christ died for us. Our freedom from the law is accomplished, so now we can belong to another another. And if we belong to another, then we can bear fruit for him. If I asked you, why why did God save you? Or what was the purpose that God saved you for? Perhaps you would say something like, he did it to show his love, which is 100% true. (laughs) We could go back to Romans 5 for that. Or to display his glory or his justice, also true. But according to this verse, the reasons Paul is bringing out is that when he died for us, the result is that we belong to him and thus can bear fruit for him. So what kind of fruit is your life bearing? The pastor and I were talking and he mentioned a couple of helpful verses for me to, to consider and I think they're worth mentioning here. Just the fruit of the spirit. What kind of fruits are being produced in my life? Love? Joy? Joy? Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, a few others. These are the fruits of the spirit. And it's good for us to evaluate ourselves and ask, do I see these fruits being manifested in my life? But we also, at the same time, have to be careful because self-evaluation can turn into, okay, I just need to do better at this. And this and this and this. I'm not being self-controlled. I just need to be more self-controlled. But that's missing a key point about the fruit analogy, isn't it? (laughs) It's not the fruit of my willpower, it's the fruit of the spirit, right? It is God producing the fruit in us. Same thing is at play in John chapter 15. Jesus says there is a type of branch. Same analogy of of trees and fruits. There's a certain type of branch that bears fruit. Which one? The one that does all the right things, that spends enough time in the Bible, that comes to church enough, that, that you name the thing? Here's what John 15, 5 says. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Some of those other things are wonderful. Of course, I think coming to church is a wonderful thing and a needful thing even. But it is abiding in Christ that results in fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we, can, so as we think about verse 4 here, I, there's perhaps an implication that when Paul says, okay, now you can bear fruit, there's an implication, yes, I need to be bearing fruit. But I think he's more, he's not, he's more saying... Now that you're free from the law, at last, you can bear fruit. Before, it it wasn't possible. You might have been able to modify your behavior. You might be able to kind of uh, put some discipline into your life. But you couldn't bear the fruit of the Spirit. You could not bear fruit that results in eternal life, uh, to to use the analogy from chapter 6. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's end eternal life. Verse 5, for, after all, as he unpacks verse 4 a little bit more, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's saying, okay, you at last are able to bear fruit. Before, when you were under the law, that wasn't possible. He says, when you were living in the flesh, you had these sinful desires within you, and they were not tamped down by the law. Surprisingly, shockingly, they were actually aroused by the law at some level. And we'll see more. He'll flesh that idea out in a, in a few minutes as well in, in the coming verses. But the point of verse 5 is saying that if you are just looking to the law as a means of salvation, if you're trying to climb the hill to Mr. Legality's help, house, that will not actually fix the problem because you have sinful desires in you that the law actually spotlights and magnifies. And so these sinful desires aroused by the law, they have a result. They are at work in our members for death. On the flip side, that's our old self. But now, verse 6, another beautiful but now like we talked about last week. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So there's another, you know, emphasizing this principle that it is through the death of Christ that we are freed from the captivity of the law. And here's another result clause. So that, here's another result, purpose, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For the Christian, it is a totally new mindset. It's, and it's more than that, it's a new life that comes that allows us to bear fruit for God. I mean, this, we've been talking about this new life for weeks now. Dead to sin, alive to God, freed from the law, under grace. But it's not merely philosophical or theoretical. No, it is supernatural. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life, the new way of the Spirit. This, when God frees us from being under the law, we are given entirely new life. It's a, it's a radical disconnect, a total change through His Spirit. I think it was last year that Becca and I were headed up to New Hampshire. It might have even been July 4th weekend, and we were going, and our battery died. I might have even told this story in the past. I don't preach that often, but here I am already recycling illustrations. Uh, But uh, we were about to get going, and I went to close the trunk, and it's like an electric trunk, and it wouldn't close because the battery had died in the time to open the trunk to the time to close it. (laughs) And it it was pretty inconvenient, for sure. Um, But the fact was there had been some little warning signs along the way that the battery was kind of starting to go I just wasn't savvy enough to realize it like when like the little computer console was like Randomly shutting down and then starting up again, you know, that should have been an indicator Um, But but at some point that battery was not doing what it needed to do and so that battery needed to die (laughs) And needed to go and so we called AAA and they came and they took out the old battery put in the new battery and now the car can do what it needs to do. We as Christians are equipped with a brand new battery, as it were. The law was inadequate. It was a bad battery to do what we need to do. We couldn't, it couldn't help us bear fruit for God, but now our battery has been replaced and is the Holy Spirit himself. And it is through his energizing life that we are at last able to do what we were made to do so let me just pause and ask all this stuff about freedom from the law are you still under the law you say I I don't think so I don't offer sacrifices I don't do all these things that I think of as God's law well let me ask you this do you try to gain God's favor by doing good things friends apart from Jesus the sin inside you will grab anything it can, including God's commands, and just bear fruit that results in death. You need the Holy Spirit to give you new life. That's how you can bear fruit for God. So whether you're watching on the live stream or perhaps here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do that. Don't trust in your own goodness. Don't try to climb the hill because you'll find, as Christian did, that the law just keeps on getting bigger and bigger until it feels like it will crush you. Christian, how do you try to live the Christian life? Wow. Do you try to earn God's smile through living perfectly? It's good to want to please your Father. The Bible makes it very clear that we can, as Christians, please God in how we live. So that's true. But we seek to please God not so that he accepts us. We seek to please God because he has already accepted us. Because we have died to the law through the body of Christ. You see, we need to abide in Christ. We need to walk in the Spirit, the new life that we've been given just as we didn't save ourselves, so we don't sanctify ourselves. It's not that the Christian life is completely passive, it's not let go and let God, but it does mean that our hope of bearing fruit for God that will last is not rooted in our performance or ability, but in the spirits working in us. So what should this do for us very practically? Well, it should drive us to our knees. We should be begging the Lord to help us live in this new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. It's on our knees before the Lord in prayer that we say, Lord, this is who you are. We get to know him. We seek to abide in the Spirit. We confess our sins to him and embrace his forgiveness. We bring our requests to him, acknowledging, I can't do this on my own. I need your Spirit to work through me. It's all about this new life in the Spirit. And in many ways, this this idea of new life in the Spirit is really the next stop in Paul's logic train. But he's going to wait to to park there for a few more verses. Chapter 8, he's going to really flesh out this idea of the Spirit. He hints at it, right? He says, you you serve in the new way of the Spirit, verse 6. And that's a critical thing to keep in mind, that the new life is the life of the Spirit. But first, before he's going to unpack that idea, he's going to ask two more questions just to clarify, here's what I mean, here's what I don't mean about the law. And today we'll just tackle one of those. (laughs) So the first question is in verse 7, and this brings us to our second big idea this morning, which is simply the goodness of the law. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. (sighs) there are a lot of things that are feel kind of similar between the law and sin both if you especially if you've been locking in on what we said about chapter 6 both are viewed as the unbeliever's master both are things that we are freed from as Christians law and sin both are connected to the devastating result of death separation from god so paul is just making sure that we understand that doesn't mean they're the same thing. (laughs) Is the law sin? By no means. This is a very strong exclamation. It should be familiar to us by now. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. What then? Shall we sin because we're under law but not under grace? By no means. Is the law sin? By no means. So, what is then the relationship between the law and sin? And I'll We'll get to some applications of this. I, I understand this can feel kind of in the weeds a bit, but we'll, we'll get to a couple applications at the end here. So let's understand why, what is Paul talking about. He's teasing out the relationship between law and sin. And he first talks about what the law does to sin. It reveals sin. But then he'll also talk about what sin does to the law. It uses the law as a base of operations. So what, the, what does the law do to sin? This is at the, the middle of verse 7. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, Paul has already, in chapter 2, said that even Gentiles who do not have the law are a law to themselves. In other words, they have a conscience. So, those without the Mosaic law, without God's special revelation, do have the law, in a sense. And and, and we could say that they certainly have moral awareness. There's a a natural sense of right and wrong that God has built into humans' conscience, specifically. But if it it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin. Uh, The law shows sin to be what it is. It says, hey, that desire that you found inside of yourself, here's what it is. It's called covetousness or whatever the particular sin is. One commentator said that law defines sin. I think that's a helpful way to look at it. And Paul uses an example. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now this is the tenth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Don't desire these things that God does not mean for you to have. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Uh, So the law basically reveals these sins to us. It identifies them. But what does sin do to the law? Verse 8. So here's what sin does. Notice in verse 8 he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, pause, now look down at verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, he's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that sin is opportunistic. It wants to take even God's law And use it for its own twisted purposes. So how does it do that? How does it use it as a base of operations, as it were? Verse 8 says, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. One commentator said, The law is not sin, nor the originator of sin, but the occasion or operating base that sin has used to accomplish its evil and deadly purpose. Imagine an army invading a foreign land what's one of the first things they do when they get on shore they need to set up Bases that they can then work from That's kind of what sin does with the law. It's like it. It's gone on to the land It says ooh law there we go I can hop in there and use that as a base to invade the rest of the land Sinful curiosity is aroused by commands. I mean think about telling a child don't climb up that tree What are they likely going to do? (laughs) You know, now that I think about it, that tree looks pretty climbable. (laughs) Don't stand on the couch. Hmm, good idea. (laughs) The law provokes, as it were, this sinful desire. The sin was already there, but sin seizes on the commandment to do this anyway. I like the way this, this uh, one commentator put it. I know I'm quoting from commentators a lot, but this was a hard passage, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, quote a little bit. Uh, he said, from a human perspective, law is mistakenly viewed as a restriction that in turn causes resentment and gives rise to rebellion. Isn't that true of us? We, view law, we, we see a command, and we forget that commands are for our good, at least they should be, and so we view it as this restriction, and that makes us kind of annoyed and resentful, and eventually that manifests itself in rebellion. I mean, imagine if, like, you had a boss, and the boss said, hey, everyone, our co- we're drinking a lot of coffee here, so here's a new rule. You can only have two free cups of coffee a day at the Keurig, okay? Or bring your own Keurig, or something like that. Well, maybe you don't drink a lot of coffee, but now that he said you can only have two, you're like, I kind of want three. <laughs> that, it's the, the commandment comes in and actually arouses the law. You've, you've had this limitation placed on you and our sinful natures buck up against that. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Not that it's non-existent, but that it's inactive. One more quote. This, does not, from, uh, this is from a guy named Doug Moo. This does not mean, of course, that sin did not exist, but that it was not as active or powerful before the law as after Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now Paul's talking in first person, so it seems that he's talking about himself, that there is a sense in which when he first understood about God's expectations, God's laws, God's commands, he died as it were. He realized he felt that weight. Again, kind of like Christian going up to the mountain. The burden got heavier the closer he got to the law. It's also possible, I think this is an interesting idea that's, that's worth noting, because I, I do think this is part of what's going on, but you think about, when, if I just said, hey, when did the commandment come? Your mind might go to Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And it's possible Paul is kind of hinting at that a little bit as well, that before the commandment, I, he says I, but perhaps in kind of a representative sense, like I, but also the people who have the law, they were, or th- that were about to get the law, the commandment comes, and then what's the result? There is death as the commandment is, is in place. These, the, the law is given. There are consequences within the law, and so on. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Sin is the brigger of death, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, it tricked me, it said, here's life, but then all of a sudden, it threw the commandment, killed me. The thing that we think will finally save us. This is totally what Bunyan was getting at with Pilgrim's Progress. Ah, I can finally have relief from my burden. It promises life, but it proves that it will only be death if you try to go that way. We cannot keep God's law perfectly, and so the law becomes crushing to us. Sin takes the commandment, it deceives us, it actually causes more sin to rise up, and thus it condemns us to death. So, verse 12. So, what's Paul's conclusion? The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says, don't let there be any mistaking. Yes, sin uses the law, and yes, therefore it's good for you to be freed from the law. Because if I'm free from the law, then sin can't use it in me anymore. But the law itself is holy and righteous and good. Why does this matter? Well, if the law is bad, then that means that something that God said is bad. But God's commands are always good. So let's finish with just two applications this morning try to take some of these really intense, exegetical thoughts, and let's see how they should affect us. First application. Remember that what God says is always good. Despite what you may think about some manner of what God has said in his scriptures, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now again, in, in the context he's talking about, he, he is absolving the law from the accusation that it is sin. Sin. That the law is bad. But by extension, we can say then, okay, everything that God has said is good. The words of the Lord are pure. Your words are wonderful, Psalm 119 says. God's commands are for our benefit. And think about this. If this is the character of the law, holy, righteous, good, what then must be the character of the lawgiver? Holy, righteous, good. Maybe that's a truth that you need to embrace this morning. That what God says is always good, and therefore, He is always good. Second application, rejoice in the freedom that Christ has provided. If you try to use the law as a means of salvation or of sanctification, if you try to live the Christian life through just doing all the right things, that's going to be crushing. You're freed from that. I mean, think about Christian uh, in Pilgrim's Progress. He's going toward the mountain. It's, It's causing him fear. In fact, his burden is getting heavier and heavier the more he gets into the law. It doesn't relieve him. It just magnifies it. It helps him understand it even more. But Christian does eventually have his burden relieved. And the way that it's relieved is he goes to an old rugged cross. And it is there that the burden rolls off his back, never to be seen again. God has not left us in our law-bound, sin-infiltrated state. No, we have died to the law through the body of Christ. We are free. And so, yes, we should live in light of that. We belong to him who has been raised from the dead. We have Jesus' own spirit within us. Given such freedom, we are now able to walk as God desires us to. And so, we can sing, not out of ritualistic, mindless obedience, but out of heartfelt gratitude to our new master, Take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Because every part of us belongs to God, we ought to serve Him with every part of us. But perhaps even more so, because every part of us belongs to God, we are at last able to serve Him with every part of us. Let's pray. Lord, may you help us to serve you. May you show us what these truths mean. May you show us how they can apply to us. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Help us to live that out, to not seek to be sanctified and drawn closer to Christ through the law, but to live in light of the freedom that we have because of the Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for him and for the new life that you have given. And Lord, if there's someone here who has never embraced that new life, I do ask that you would convict them, that you would show them the futility of trying to earn your favor through good things. May they come to know you, experience your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.